skepticism is gone. We have faith in our leaders. We're optimistic as to what becomes of it all. It really boils down to our ability to accept. We don't need pessimism. There are no limits. <laughs> it we must look to the strength like this. of our nation, our ideals, a vision. Excuse me. Just survive. You know, you look like the head fell on the cheese dip back in 1957. <gasps> you, you're okay. This one, real fucking ugly. Oh. You see, I take these glasses off. She looks like a regular person, doesn't she, huh? Put them back on. Formaldehyde face. That's what That's we got. That's enough out of you. You get out or I call the cops. Call the cops? You know what you need? You need a Brazilian plastic sword. I've got one that can see. Welcome, friends and foes across all time, space, wavelengths, frequencies, and dimensions to the Mental Pop Podcast brought to you by Primordial Productions. My name is Mad, and I'll be your host today. And please be sure to visit www.mentalpop.space for an archive of all of our previous episodes, as well as a little blog uh, that I keep updated over there, and lots of new surprises coming in the very near future. Click the microphone icon and leave me a 90-second voice message. Or uh, please consider signing up to the new mailing list, and I'll start sending out newsletters every couple of weeks. Uh, I think we got a very interesting episode today, as we're going to be uh, talking about some curious theories uh, that, while they're not accepted by many scientists or historians as being factual, uh, that I find them to be very, very interesting and worth another look, to say the least. I'm not saying I believe in the topics we'll be discussing today one way or the other. And like I said, these aren't accepted by mainstream science or historians, uh, but they're definitely interesting perspectives and worth a little bit more uh, consideration. We're definitely going to have some food for thought on today's episode. And hooray! Today's episode will be a little bit more lighthearted in nature. We won't be discussing human trafficking statistics or bullshit COVID contradictions. Uh, so you're welcome for attempting to diversify the information we cover every week on the Mental Pop Podcast. I never wanted this show to be strictly political or conspiratorial or be a news of the week format. I also want to cover news of the weird and bizarre, science, technology, history, mythology, cryptozoology, and much, much more every week or two on this uh, program. So hopefully this episode, which is episode six, by the way, is finally moving in a more diverse direction with the topics uh, that we'll be presenting. And I have to warn you, I'm not an expert in any of the topics we're going to talk about today. And I've drank 23 beers, so I'm sure to be sloppy. And I encourage you to have a couple beers or a glass of wine uh, if you're out there listening today in the comfort of your own homes, because I guarantee that makes each and every episode better and more wholesome. Uh, so put your rose-colored glasses on, open the corridors of your imagination to prepare for Mental Pop Episode 6. Not to be confused with Meta, which is just a soulless exploitation of technology and human psychology. I want to say something briefly about the term Meta. Now, meta is an interesting concept. When I personally think of meta, I think of a character who knows that they are a character in a story, uh, but are breaking the fourth wall to connect with the audience about the absurdity of the situation. In that regard, we can look at classic Looney Tunes uh, characters, or even silent film stars like Charlie Chaplin. I'm sure meta goes back to plays and comedies, uh, court jesters and clowns for hundreds or even thousands of years. 
Of course, these days, characters like uh, Marvel's Deadpool are the meta prime, but the idea has probably been around since ancient cave shamanism. The augmented reality of the allegory of the cave, which is really just presenting a grand illusion. Anyway, it's to be noted, while we're exploring some interesting topics today, uh, what I'm presenting are not facts, but theories. Uh, so please don't mistake today's episode as me endorsing the following theories as facts. Although, that also doesn't mean I'm trying to debunk anything here today. I'm presenting what I uh, consider to be some interesting possibilities that are worthy of further consideration. I'd like to give a shout-out also today, uh, an arrest in peace to actor Dean Stockwell, with a lifetime career in Hollywood, and starred as Al Calavici. And one of my all-time favorite television shows, which was Quantum Leap. And we'll be taking a bit of a quantum leap ourselves here today with today's episode. So it seems fitting to bid a fond farewell to the memorable performances and all-around good human being that was Dean Stockwell. And our first topic today is a very controversial uh, subject for geologists, and a subject that I was first turned on to in the very early 2000s by none other than comic book legend Neil Adams, who was a proponent of this idea, and that comes with the theory of expanding Earth, or the idea that planets expand over billions of years. It was uh, in the early 2000s that comic book legend Neil Adams first appeared on the overnight radio program Coast to Coast AM, uh, when I began to contemplate the fundamental possibilities in which an expanding Earth actually uh, might kind of make a lot of sense, uh, though it's widely debunked by the scientific community in the 21st century. And in considering this topic, uh, we must try to visualize that our planet was once half of its current size, or even 25% of its current size. The expanding Earth theory doesn't really say exactly how big the Earth uh, initially was, but over hundreds of millions and billions of years, uh, through drastic cooling and the enormous release of gases deep within the planet, the landmass stretched out over immense periods of time. Now, it's a bad analogy, but we can kind of look at it like a balloon uh, with intricately detailed geology taking place both within the surface and on the surface. Uh, however, this idea of an expanding planet did not begin with Neil Adams, uh, though he's taken the theory into some different directions. Uh, but it was actually first emerged in uh, 1834 when Charles Darwin investigated stepped plains uh, featuring raised beaches in Patagonia, which indicated to him that a huge area of South America had been uplifted to its present height by a succession of elevations which acted over the whole of this space with nearly an equal force. Darwin hypothesized that the uplift at the continental scale required the gradual expansion of some central mass of the Earth, acting by intervals on the outer crust, with the elevations being uh, concentric uh, with the form of a globe, or certainly nearly so. In 1835, he extended this concept to include the Andes as part of a curved enlargement of the Earth's crust due to the action of one connected force. Uh, now, Darwin later pretty much abandoned this idea, uh, but different variations on expanding Earth theory continued over the decades and centuries, as it was in 1888 when Russian engineer Ivan uh, Osipovich uh, Yarkovsky suggested that some sort of aether is absorbed within the Earth and transformed into new chemical elements, forcing the celestial bodies to expand. Uh, this was connected with his mechanical explanation of gravitation. Also, uh, the th uh, thesis of the genius inventor Nikola Tesla were based on absorption, uh, absorption and transformation of ether energy into normal matter. <clears throat> and initially supporting continental drift, uh, the late uh, uh, Australian uh, geologist S. Warren Carey 
advocated expansion from the 1950s before the development of plate tectonics uh, provided the generally accepted explanation of the movement of the continents. Uh, and he, ex- he ex- uh, expanded on the ex- uh, expanding Earth theory until his death, uh, demonstrating that subduction and other events could not balance the seafloor spreading at oceanic ridges and piling yet unresolved paradoxes that continue to plague plate tectonics. Starting in 1956, he proposed some sort of mass increase in the planets and said that a final solution to the problem is only possible in a cosmological perspective in connection with the expansion of the universe. Okay, so the main reasoning behind these theories and ideas on expanding Earth uh, was to try and explain curved plains and mountain regions uh, that held fossilized specimens of creatures that only lived below uh, surface levels, as well as a way to try and explain the separation of continents uh, from which it was once believed to be one super landmass, otherwise uh, come to be known as Pangaea. And with the evidences uh, which were presented in highlight, uh, the notion of plate tectonics being responsible for the shifting and moving of land masses in the mid-1960s, the ideas of expanding Earth theory generally became debunked uh, around the 1960s in favor of plate tectonics and discredited uh, by the scientific community. Uh, though the possibility of an expanding Earth had been deeply studied uh, from the early 1800s and well into the 1900s. Now, it's kind of amazing to think that it wasn't until 1912 that somebody realized that all the continents seemed to fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. When it was in 1912 that German meteorologist Alfred Wegener uh, proposed the radical idea that the continents had once been joined in one gigantic landmass and then drifted apart to finally end up in their present positions. In 1915, he presented this evidence in the first edition of his book, The Origin of Continents and Oceans. Most scientists of the day disagreed, and it was dismissed as an absurd daydream, while other people noted that Francis Bacon, uh, many others, uh, Snyder, uh, Pellegrini, uh, Frank Taylor, Howard Baker, and Robert uh, Mantovani had also noted that coastlines fitted together. The coastal fit was one of the strongest lines of evidence for continental drift, but Wegener uh, also matched fossils and geology across widely separated continents as further evidence. And Wagner decided to call this supercontinent Pangaea based on the Greek word pan, meaning whole and entire, and Gaia, meaning Mother Earth and land. And to be noted, Pan was also the horned Greek god of nature and the wild mountains, uh, rustic music, uh, companion to the nymphs of the forest, and associated with sex and lust, while Gaia was the Greek goddess considered a primordial deity and Mother Earth herself, or our ancestral mother from which all life was sprung. So we have the unification of Pan and Gaia as being symbolically, uh, symbolically united in order to form the supercontinent uh, where all life originated billions of years ago. Uh, but it's just kind of crazy to think from a scientific and geological standpoint uh, that it's only been a little bit over 100 years since the idea of a supercontinent first originated and that it took that long to theorize that all of the continents were once at one time connected into one giant formation. And what expanding Earth theory really did was visualize uh, that not only were all the continents once connected, but they were uh, all connected on the Earth that is much, uh, was a much, much smaller sized planet. And it's much more complex than this, but in a nutshell, my understanding is that the idea of the Earth was once much smaller, and as everything began to cool, deep inside the Earth, uh, mass pressure created by gases uh, began to slowly expand the crust of the planet, a bit like a balloon. And thus the continents, at least in part, began to form. And again, with the estimated time frame of the Earth being about 4.5 billion billion years, uh, we're talking about a process of at least 2 or 3 billion years here. And we're looking at this in fits and spurts, so to speak. 
so some expansion uh, might have been more active over a couple hundred million years and then went dormant for millions of years before acting up again and expanding. And it's kind of hard to imagine and visualize a time frame of 4.5 billion years. And a lot of folks out there want to believe the Earth is only 6,000 years old for some reason, or that the Earth is flat and that the moon is a hologram and outer space is just a trick of the devil. Uh, but for the sake of argument, let's say that uh, by actual best estimates of some very intelligent scientific minds and geologists which have collected data, and a lot of data, over the past 150 years, that the Earth is indeed uh, 4.5 billion years old. <sighs> let's try to have a reference point to scientific understanding and not just say that everything is a lie or a trick of the devil, that the Earth is only 6,000 years old because that's a lot easier to understand than 4.5 billion years. But to understand or allow expanding Earth theory, we have to understand that this took place uh, slowly over billions of years. Uh, but it could also have taken place at times more rapidly over a period of tens or hundreds of millions of years, while perhaps becoming dormant at other times in the range of millions of years. And we might even have periods of retraction involved with all of this. Uh, that's to say, great expansion, slow retraction, great expansion, slow retraction. Almost like the planet is inhaling and exhaling breath. Anyway, I want to stop here and note something that a lot of the uh, information and uh, ideas and insight that I'm going to be utilizing today comes from one of the leading experts on expanding Earth theory. And that comes with uh, Stephen W. Harrell, who was a design engineer working at the UK's Electricity Research Center when he first became interested in the structural strength of dinosaurs. Uh, this developed into the concept of a reduced gravity Earth and a lifelong interest in developing various methods to calculate paleogravity. Uh, he has interacted with many of Earth's expansionists to argue that paleogravity must be related to Earth expansion, and this implies it was caused by the mass increase of the Earth. Uh, he has written a book, Dinosaurs and the Expanding Earth, and edited uh, The Hidden History of Earth Expansion. He also has given presentations and written a number of articles about his interest. Uh, details of his latest work are available on his website, dinox.org. That's D-I-N-O-X dot org. Uh, so I would definitely recommend you dig into this subject further. Visit Dynex.org. Uh, you're going to get a lot lot more technical explanation of things regarding expanding Earth theory than I'm able to present here today. Uh, so really look into these ideas for yourself and ask what makes the most sense. Even though expanding Earth theory has been largely debunked uh, by the scientific community at large, that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of compelling evidence for its existence, uh, with evidence that's been collected for nearly 200 years now. And some key ideas that I want to relay in regards to expanding Earth theory, because I don't want to spend too much time today with any specific topic, as we've got other information to discuss. Uh, but here are some key ideas in my mind, which makes me believe expanding Earth theory is a very real possibility. One, for every argument against expanding Earth, uh, I can think of fairly easy explanations that would come to the defense of an expanding Earth hypothesis. For one, people who want to debunk expanding Earth also ask, if all the planet was just one giant landmass, how did the oceans form? And where was all the water at? Etc., etc. Where did the water come from? And we can debate this by saying there was once far less water on the planet, and once the Earth began expanding and cooling down, the atmosphere surrounding the planet also began to expand, and ice began to form. And we have to keep in mind that we have vast releases of various gases into the atmosphere, as well as whatever trapped moisture might have been in the soil. Not only that, we have the theory that a considerable amount of Earth's water was actually brought here by meteorites coming from elsewhere in our newly formed solar system. Or secondarily, we could say that the Earth was completely covered in water, 
And with the expansion of the planet and the landmass beneath as it began to rise and form uh, from the primordial chaos, so to speak, we basically have two options here. A smaller planet with much less water that acquired more atmosphere and weather and water over huge periods of time, or perhaps a planet that was completely covered in water and the oceans only formed after the planet uh, beneath it started to expand. Now, there are options, uh, whatever questions might be raised in regards to the exact scenario and how this all took place. I'm not going to let the idea of water completely dismiss expanding Earth theory. Two, a major theory behind expanding Earth uh, also contends that with a planet that was much smaller in epochs past, uh, that the gravity of the planet was also less due to having less mass. Likewise, time would have been drastically affected, as it would have taken less for the Earth's rotation to make a complete day and the Earth's axis uh, was most likely uh, heavily affected as well. But the primary idea here, and one that I find appealing, is that due to the planet being smaller and thus having less gravity, this would give a reason, at least one reason, why biological life eventually became so damn big, such as the massive size of dinosaurs and uh, even certain trees and plants and funguses, uh, which grew to enormous sizes of millions uh, or billions of years ago. Less gravity on a smaller planet uh, meant things just naturally grew bigger. And it's amazing to think with all this, the planet Earth itself, uh, we're looking at it kind of like a seed. A seed which is sprouting and expanding and becoming something new. Evolving into whatever was etched deep within the DNA of that seed. Uh, but not to get metaphysical there. The idea that less gravity gave birth to larger reptiles, plants, and fungus is one that's always been a very interesting uh, possibility to me. We need to only look into the depths of the oceans uh, to see uh, the change of gravity there, how that affects uh, the size of whales and sharks and octopus and various creatures of the ocean that grow to different sizes than they perhaps would have on the surface of the planet just because the gravity is different there. And again, I know we're not dealing with hundreds of... I know, I know we're dealing uh, with hundreds of millions and even billions of years, and that can be hard to grasp. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying I totally believe in expanding Earth theory, or that I'm trying to promote it as science on today's episode, uh, but I definitely think it gives us a lot to think about, and also allows our imagination to run a little wild in some exciting and provocative directions. Three, another thing that debunkers want to bring up uh, is how the mass of the planet would have to change in order for an expanding Earth to make sense. They seem to think that if a planet was once just a giant continent, uh, that there was no explanation for the mass increase that would have to take place in order to make up all the matter on this planet uh, that we currently have. But yet again, uh, there are very, uh, various explanations for this, including the possibility that the crust of the planet just grew much thinner. Actually, there are several things at play here to debate the debunkers of expanding Earth theory. We have to consider the Earth is filled with gases, uh, which would make up a lot of space, take up a lot of space, where matter might otherwise reside. We have to consider that some of the ideas of hollow Earth theory, which is also a very interesting concept uh, to explore. Perhaps we'll do that on a later episode. And that one is ultimately, it's tied to expanding Earth theory. Hollow Earth is ultimately tied to expanding Earth theory. And lastly, we must consider that enormous amounts of metric tonnage of cosmic dust and debris and meteorites have been hitting our planet for billions of years. And honestly, it isn't so hard to believe that the majority of matter on the planet Earth actually resided deeply compacted within the core of the planet, and that Earth was once 50% or even 25% as large as it is today. Uh, like water being used to debunk expanding Earth, I also don't think mass can be used to debunk expanding Earth. 
because there are counter-arguments to be made in both regards. Four, while I'm not endorsing Spanninger theory as fact, some of it makes a lot of sense to me and also helps to make a lot of other things make more sense. And I say this in a scientific-minded way. I'm not saying plate tectonics aren't at play here because it seems obvious that they are. However, I still think there is room for ideas of an expanding Earth and some of the places that allows us to ask questions and use our imagination. What was it Einstein once said? That imagination is more important than knowledge. Imagination is asking the questions where knowledge is formed. Without imagination, without questioning the approved and mainstream science, it all becomes stagnant and uninteresting. In close, I probably didn't do a very good job explaining expanding Earth theory on today's episode, but in my opinion, it's a topic worthy of more investigation and is definitely worth asking more questions and more consideration. And along with the other topics we're about to talk about today, it shouldn't be debunked as crazy conspiracy just because it's a very complicated subject that the scientific community has pushed into the so-called fringe. Expanding Earth theory definitely makes a lot more sense to me than flat earthers. And moving right along today, I know there are a growing number of people out there who think that the Earth was flat and that dinosaurs never existed. But for the sake of argument, I'm going to say dinosaurs did indeed exist and that the Earth is not flat. I'm not saying that there aren't some hoax dinosaur bones and specimens, uh, but I'm not a scientific extremist, nor am I allowing religion or creationism to dictate that our planet is only 6,000 years old and that there's no further room for discussion. So, okay, up next, we're tackling another very interesting theory, and again, one which has largely been debunked by the scientific community at large, and that comes with the idea of a one-electron universe. I'm going to make this easy and start with an article of the subject uh, from Popular Mechanics from 2017. What if every electron is the same electron? A vaguely plausible thought experiment persists that every electron is one electron moving back and forth through time. Here's a question you probably never considered. Why are all electrons the same? Every electron in the universe has the exact same mass, exactly the same charge, and if you think about it, there's no reason why they'd have to be. In 1940, physicist John Wheeler came up with a novel new theory that might explain why all electrons are identical. According to him, the reason that every electron is the same is because every electron is the same electron. Uh, There's a lot of complicated physics involved, but simply put, it might be possible that every electron in the universe is the same electron bouncing backward and forward in time. Just as an electron can be bounced around in space when hit with light, there might also be a way to bounce an electron backward in time. If that's the case, uh, then there's another consequence of this theory. Electrons moving backward in time are positrons, the antimatter component of electrons. Not only are all electrons the same electron, but all positrons are the same electron moving backward in time. Uh, This is an interesting idea, but it's far from proven. Uh, There are plenty of problems, such as why there are so many more electrons than positrons, and why uh, the number of electrons uh, are more, are greater than the number of positrons. After all, if a single electron can bounce backward and forward through time forever, why aren't there an infinite number of electrons? 
But if this is true, what else might it mean? Perhaps every other particle from protons to neutrons to exotic particles like neutrinos is all just one particle bouncing back and forth through time. That would mean that not only are we all made of the same kinds of stuff, but in fact each of us is made uh, using just one proton, neutron, and electron. Of course, it might not be true at all, but what if it is? And that's the end of the article. So, okay, uh, so to recap and expand on this article, the one electron universe theory states that every electron in the universe is actually one particle that travels forwards and backwards through time. And when traveling forward, it's an electron. And when traveling backward, it becomes a positron. And there's a whole lot of complicated math and huge numbers involved with all this, which I'm going to skip today uh, because it really isn't necessary. And I have no grasp or understanding of what even it's trying to say. Uh, and I only have so many fingers and toes to count on. But the one electron universe could potentially solve some of the most intriguing questions in quantum physics. The theory was first brought up by John, uh, John Archibald Wheeler, a theoretical physicist who worked on the hydrogen bomb at Los Alamos and later taught at Princeton. Uh, he's largely known for reviving interest in general relativity in the 1940s and the 1950s. Uh, the idea is based on the world lines traced out across space-time by every electron. Rather than have a myriad of such lines, Wheeler suggested they could all be parts of one single line, like a huge tangled knot traced out by any one electron. Any given moment in time is represented by a slice across space-time and would meet the knotted line a great many times. Uh, each such meeting point represents a real electron at that moment. All those points, half the lines will be directed towards uh, forward in time, and half will have looped around to be directed backwards. Wheeler suggested these backward sections appeared as the antiparticle to the electron, the positron. One of the biggest reasons that this thought experiment was proposed by Wheeler is that each and every electron looks exactly the same. They all have the same mass and the same electric charge. This ultimately means that it's impossible to tell electrons apart. So it's not surprising that Wheeler thought up the idea that if all electrons look the same and act the same, uh, then maybe they are uh, indeed the same electron. The ultimate uh, <clears throat> proposing, excuse me, proposing that the entire universe contains just one electron may not seem all that absurd when we consider that the only change would be the idea of what an electron is. In practicality, everything would still function the exact same if all electrons were one electron. According to one electron theory, in the name, in the same way as an electron can be bounced around in space when hit with light, the electron might also be able to bounce backward in time. The consequence of this is that electrons moving backwards are then positrons, the antimatter components of electrons. So we're just recapping here. As Professor Wheeler taught the now famous uh, physicist Richard Feynman when he was a doctoral student, uh, Feynman famously brought up Wheeler's theory of a one electron universe when he accepted his Nobel Prize in 1965. And here's what Feynman said. I received a telephone call one day at the Graduate College at Princeton from Professor Wheeler, in which he said, Feynman, I know why all electrons have the same charge and the same mass. Why? Because they are all the same electron. And then he explained on the telephone, suppose that the world lines which we were ordinarily considering before time and space, uh, instead of only going up in time, were a tremendous knot and then, when we cut through the knot by the plane corresponding to a fixed time, we would see many, many world lines, and that would represent many electrons, except for one thing. If one selection, uh, one section 
of this is an ordinary electron world line and the section in which it's reversed itself and it's coming back from the future, we have the wrong sign to the proper time, to the proper four velocities. And that's equivalent to changing the sign of the charge and therefore that part of the path would act like a positron. To many physicists, what Wheeler was presenting really didn't seem that absurd. Uh, physicists were already working on the idea of electrons and positrons. Wheeler just proposed a way to connect every single one of them to exist uh, simultaneously as a way of explaining why no one could tell the difference between them. Now, the main reason this theory was ultimately discredited and debunked, aside from the fact that it all seems very unlikely that everything in the material world of matter is only made up of one electron bouncing inf infinitely through all of time and space, it's that scientists discovered that there are, in fact, more electrons than there are positrons in the universe. And this discovery has become one of the greatest mysteries in physics, and there's no consensus hypothesis to explain the phenomena of why there are more electrons in the universe than there are positrons. And this quandary is known as the Baryon asymmetry. Uh, many more electrons have been observed uh, than positrons, and electrons are thought to comfortably outnumber them. According to Feynman, he raised the issue with Wheeler, who speculated that the missing positrons might be hidden within protons. Now, regardless of burying the symmetry or why there are more electrons in the universe than positrons, I find this whole subject fascinating. I think that there are uh, that the positive spark in every atom or the positive energy of every atom is, in fact, the same electron, the exact same energy existing at the heart of every single atom across all of time and space. It's actually kind of beautiful. It's mystical and metaphysical. And the idea that all things that ever were, are, or ever will be all consist of atoms that are made up of the exact same particle is fascinating and really kind of a spiritual ideal. It's essentially saying that the primary and primordial force of energy that brings every atom to life is the exact same primordial force of energy regardless of where it exists in space and time. That all of reality is essentially a huge net with an extremely hyperactive little electron uh, that's bouncing back and forth uh, from the beginning to the end of time and back again with unlimited kinetic energy. And if that were the case, for all intents and purposes, that one electron could also uh, almost be seen as the consciousness of quote-unquote God, experiencing all things at once and existing within all things at the same instant, uh, regardless of time or distance. And I'm not going to go too deep into this concept today either, uh, but it's a very interesting and perplexing idea, and one which, in my opinion, transcends science and also has a, some spiritual implications. It's a very romantic idea. It's definitely a feast for the imagination. Do I believe in the one electron universe as fact? No, I can't say that, but I also can't say that it can be completely discredited just because there are more electrons in the universe than there are positrons. That's not a deal breaker for me as to why this idea could be completely discredited. However you look at it, uh, whether every electron is the same electron or not, I would argue that the energy and even the consciousness behind every electron, and thus every atom, is of the same universal source. And before we continue, uh, we're being at the halfway point of today's episode, and since this will serve as the Thanksgiving episode of Mental Pop, I'd like to take a moment to play for you a couple of minutes of the classic William S. Burroughs spoken word poem entitled Thanksgiving Prayer from uh, recorded in 1990. And we'll be right back to finish out today's episode after this brief Thanksgiving prayer. For John Dillinger, in hope he is still alive. Thanksgiving Day, November 28th, 
1986. Thanks for the wild turkey and passenger pigeons destined to be shit out through wholesome American guts. Thanks for a continent to despoil and poison. Thanks for Indians to provide a modicum of challenge and danger. Thanks for vast herds of bison to kill and skin, leaving the carcasses to rot. Thanks for bounties on wolves and coyotes. Thanks for the American dream to vulgarize and falsify until the bare lies shines. Thanks for the KKK, for nigger-killing lawmen feeding their notches. For decent church-going women with their mean, pinched, bitter, evil faces. Thanks for Kill a Queer for Christ stickers. Thanks for laboratory aids. Thanks for prohibition and the war against drugs. Thanks for a country where nobody is allowed to mind his own business. Thanks for a nation of thinks. Yes, thanks for all the memories. All right, let's see your arms. You always were a headache and you always were a bore. Thanks for the last and greatest betrayal of the last and greatest of human dreams. And last but not least on today's episode, uh, we have a topic that I first discovered uh, for myself through independent research about 20 years ago, uh, only to discover that other people had already asked the same questions, and that is if there is in fact any correlation between the biblical story of Moses leading the exodus out of Egypt and the emergence of monotheism uh, to that of the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten, uh, who brought forth monotheism for the first time in Egypt with the worship of the Aten sun disk as a singular god. Now, of course, uh, Akhenaten, uh, for all intents and purposes, is a very eccentric character uh, with his famous queen Nefertiti and their even more famous offspring, the pharaoh Tutankhamun, better known as King Tut. And some scholars and historians also believe that uh, Nefertiti briefly took control of the throne uh, before her son Tutankhamun came to power. And arguably King Tut uh, is the most famous ruler of ancient Egypt, uh, most of which because of the supposed curse uh, that is associated with Tut and the fact that he died mysteriously at the very young age, uh, dying at 19 and only having the throne for a decade right after the very controversial reign of Akhenaten and the introduction of monotheism into Egyptian society. Now, the exodus, um, that is the liberation of the people of Israel from supposed slavery in Egypt, is believed to have occurred sometime around the 13th century BC, under the leadership of Moses, of course. Uh, so somewhere between 1300 to 1201 BC is when the exodus of uh, the Jews out of Egypt, uh, supposedly slaves, uh, occurred, is believed to have occurred historically in the 13th century. While Akhenaten was a pharaoh of Egypt who reigned over the country for about 17 years uh, between roughly 1353 BC and 1335 BC. 
Uh, so we have an extremely interesting and curious correlation here <clears throat> of only 100 uh, years variable or less between the brief emergence of monotheism in Egypt under the mysterious pharaoh Akhenaten and that of the biblical story of Moses and the exodus of the Jewish people. Uh, it definitely makes a person ask some questions for anybody who studies either Christian, uh, Christian history or Egyptian history. I've stated on the program before that I am a member of the AMORC, or the Ancient and Mystical Order of the Rosy Cross, uh, which is otherwise known as the United States branch of the Rosicrucians. I'm not giving away any secrets here because there are dozens of books available uh, for free on the AMORC website, and I would you know, suggest you go check those out. Uh, but the figure of Akhenaten is extremely prevalent in Rosicrucianism, if not considered the most prominent figure in the history of the mystery schools and esoteric and mystical teachings and traditions. Now, the Rosicrucians don't outright say that Akhenaten is connected to the biblical Moses, uh, but they hold him in extremely high esteem and regard as one of the greatest and most influential teachers of all time, and even as the historical origin point for the Rosicrucian uh, mystery traditions. But it's in this extremely close time frame, uh, separating Akhenaten from Moses, of only a, a century or less, which has led a number of writers and scholars, including Sigmund Freud and Joseph Campbell among them, to assert that Moses of the Bible was not a Hebrew who was raised in an Egyptian palace, but he was an Egyptian priest who led a religious revolution to establish monotheism. This theory links Moses closely with the pharaoh Akhenaten, who established his own monotheistic belief, uh, monotheistic belief in the god of Tin, unlike any other god and more powerful than all in the fifth year of his reign. Akhenaten's monotheism may have been born of a genuine religious impulse or could have been a reaction against the priests of the god Amun, uh, who had grown almost as wealthy and powerful as the throne. In establishing monotheism and banning all of the old gods of Egypt, Akhenaten effectively eliminated any threat to the crown from the priesthood. The theory advanced by Campbell and others following Sigmund Freud's Moses and monotheism is this, is that Moses was a priest of Akhenaten who led like-minded followers out of Egypt after Akhenaten's death when his son Tutankhamun uh, restored the old gods and practices. Still, other scholars equate Moses with Akhenaten himself and see the Exodus story as a mythological rendering of Akhenaten's honest attempt at religious reform. Moses is mentioned by a number of classical writers, all drawing on the stories known in the Bible or by earlier earlier writers. He could have been a mythological character who took on a life of his own story, uh, was told over and over again, or it could have been a real person to whom magical or supernatural events were ascribed, or it could have been precisely as he is depicted in the early books of the Bible and in the Quran. Uh, dating Moses' life and the precise date of the Exodus is difficult and is always based on interpretations of the book of Exodus in conjunction with other books of the Bible. And so are always speculative. Uh, it's entirely possible that the Exodus story was written by a Hebrew scribe living in Canaan who wished to make a clear distinction between his people and the older settlements of the Amorites in the region. Uh, the story of God's chosen people, led by his servant Moses to land their God had promised them, would have served this purpose well. <clears throat> Now, let's take a minute to talk about the book Moses and Monotheism by Sigmund Freud, as that's where the first connection between Moses and the pharaoh Akhenaten was made, at least the first connection in the modern era. Moses and Monotheism is a 1939 book about the origins of monotheism, uh, written by Sigmund Freud, who, of course, is the founder of modern-day uh, psychoanalysis. 
It's Freud's final original work, and it was completed in the summer of 1939 when Freud was, effectively speaking, already writing on his deathbed. It appeared in English translation uh, the same year. Moses' monotheism shocked many of his readers because of Freud's suggestion that Moses was actually born into an Egyptian household rather than being born as a Hebrew slave and merely raised in the Egyptian royal household as a ward, as recounted in the book of Exodus. Freud proposed that Moses had been a priest of Akhenaten who fled Egypt after the Pharaoh's death and perpetuated monotheism through a different religion and that he was murdered by his followers who then, via a reaction formation, revered him and became irrevocably committed to the monotheistic idea that he represented. And in psychology, reaction formation is uh, considered a defense mechanism in which a person unconsciously replaces an unwanted or anxiety-provoking impulse with its opposite, often expressed in an exaggerated or showy uh, way. Basically, Freud was saying that intense guilt and shame is what eventually caused the followers of Moses to revere him and catapult the beliefs in monotheism outward to the masses. The book consists of three essays as an extension of Freud's work on psychoanalytic theory as a means of generating hypotheses uh, about historical events in combination with his obsessive fascination with uh, Egyptology, Egyptological uh, scholarship, archaeology, and antiquities. Freud hypothesized that Moses was not a Hebrew, but actually born into ancient Egyptian nobility, and was probably a follower of Akhenaten, uh, the world's earliest uh, recorded monotheist. Uh, the biblical account of Moses is reinterpreted by Freud in light of new findings at Tel El Armarna, uh, archaeological evidence of the Armarna heresy. Akhenaten's monotheistic worship of the ancient Egyptian solar god Aten had only been discovered in 1887, and the interpretation of that evidence was still in its early uh, phases. Uh, Freud's monograph on the subject, uh, for all the controversy that it ultimately provoked, was one of the first popular accounts of these findings. In Freud's retelling of the events, Moses led only his close followers into freedom during an unstable period in ancient Egyptian history after Echinanton's death. Uh, that subsequently, uh, they killed the Egyptian Moses in the rebellion and still later joined with another monotheistic tribe in Midian who worshipped a volcano god called Yahweh. Freud supposed that the monotheistic solar god Aten of the Egyptian Moses was fused with Yahweh, uh, the volcano god, and that the deeds of Moses were ascribed to a uh, Midianite priest who also came to be called Moses. Moses, in other words, is a composite figure from whose biography uh, the uprising and murder of the original Egyptian Armana cult priests have been excised. Freud explains that centuries after the murder of the Egyptian Moses, the rebels regretted their action, thus forming the concept of the Messiah as a hope for the return of Moses as the savior of the Israelites. Freud claimed that repressed or censored collective guilt stemming from the murder of Moses was passed down through the generations, leading the Jews to neurotic expressions of uh, religious sentiment to disperse or cope with their inheritance of trauma and guilt. In many respects, the book uh, reinstates the theogeny, uh, theogeny uh, that Freud first argued in Totem and Taboo, as Freud acknowledges in the text of Moses and monotheism on several occasions. For example, he writes, This conviction I acquired when I wrote my book on Totem and Taboo in 1912, and it has only become stronger since. 
From then on, I have never doubted that religious phenomenon are to be understood only on the model of neurotic symptoms of the individual which are so familiar to us as the return of long-forgotten important happenings in the prime evil history of the human family, and that they owe their obsessive character to that very origin and therefore derive their effect on mankind from the historical truth that they contain. That was my Freud impression, even though it's, I think it sounded a little bit more Russian than German, uh, but you'll have to excuse me. According to the historian of religion, Kimberly B. Stratton, in Moses and Monotheism, Freud possesses a primal act of murder as the origin of religion and specifically ties the memory and repression of it to the Exodus story and birth of biblical monotheism. The mythologist Joseph Campbell wrote that Freud's suggestion that Moses was an Egyptian delivered a shock to many of his admirers. According to Campbell, Freud's proposal was widely attacked uh, both with learning and without. Campbell himself refrained from passing judgment on Freud's views about Moses, although he considered Freud's willingness to publish his work despite his potential offensiveness to be noble. Now, we mentioned the uh, Armarna letters a minute ago in relation to a possible connection to Akhenaten and Moses. And the Armana letters, uh, sometimes referred to as the Armana Correspondence or Armana Tablets, uh, are cited with the abbreviation EA for L. Armana, uh, are an archive written on clay tablets primarily consisting of diplomatic correspondence between the Egyptian administration and its representatives in Canaan and Amuru, or neighboring kingdom leaders during the New Kingdom between 1360 to 1332 B.C. The letters were found in Upper Egypt at El Armarna, the modern name of the ancient capital of Akhenaten, uh, founded by the pharaoh Akhenaten uh, during the 18th dynasty of Egypt. Uh, the Armarna letters are unusual in Egyptian, core, uh, in Egyptian research uh, because they are mostly written in a script known as Akkadian cuneiform, the writing system of ancient Mesopotamia rather than that of ancient Egypt. And the language used has sometimes been characterized as a mixed language of Canaanite Akkadian. Uh, the written correspondence spans a period of about 30 years. And of course, ancient Canaan, uh, which later became Phoenicia, and in modern times is known as Lebanon and Syria, uh, was a key location for the wandering Jews in the biblical tale of the Exodus. Canaan is a primary location spoken about in the Exodus. And it's very curious and inter interesting here. Uh, we have a series of correspondence from Egypt during the reign of Akhenaten at roughly the same period of about a hundred year difference. Uh, we can guesstimate there. There's about a century's difference between where we believe the historical exodus took place and what the reign of Akhenaten was in Egypt. Uh, so we, we have, that's very curious to me right there, that we have this uh, exchange of letters between Akhenaten uh, to Canaan right around the same period as the Exodus is taking place, with Canaan being such a pivotal point in the biblical story. The Armana letters are of great significance for biblical studies as well as Semitic uh, linguistics because they shed light on the culture and language of the Canaanite peoples in this time period. Well, the letters, though written in Akkadian, are heavily colored by the mother tongue of their writers, who probably spoke an earlier form of proto-Canaanite, uh, the languages which would later evolve into its daughter languages, Hebrew and Phoenician. And Phoenician, of course, is what we consider to be modern-day phonetics, or the alphabet and the English language itself. Uh, these Canaanisms provide valuable insight into the proto-stage of those languages uh, several centuries prior to their first actual manifestation. During the transition from the late 
bronze to the early Iron Age, probably about 1250 BC. The Israelites entered Canaan, uh, settling first in the hill country in the south. The Israelites' uh, infiltration was opposed by the Canaanites, who continued to hold the stronger cities of the region. And to further emphasize the idea of the Echonetan-Moses connection and the birth of monotheism as a religion, please allow me to read a brief article from Medium.com. The name Echonetan may not sound familiar to you, but I'm sure you've heard of his wife, Nefertiti, and his son, Tutankhamun, King Tut. Recent archaeological research has shown that the reign of this pharaoh in 1353 BC or so was groundbreaking beyond belief. He turned just about everything in Egypt on its head, and the people didn't exactly go along willingly. As Alistair Sook reports in the Telegraph, Akhenaten was never even supposed to be ruler. He achieved that position when his older brother died mysteriously and he came to power after his father's death. He immediately began challenging the status quo. He built temples in the uh, religious center of Karnak that weren't dedicated to the god of that site. His temples were dedicated to Atin, the sun disk, and he changed his name from the given name of Amenhotep to Akhenaten. The Encyclopedia Britannica notes that at some point during his reign, he turned against the god Amon. The god's name and image were removed from temples across Egypt, and other gods were attacked similarly. Akhenaten uh, would create a city. Armarna dedicated his new central god Aten and moved there with his family. His actions would turn against a society that Sook explains had about 2,000 gods. The problem with diminishing the god, uh, the power of a god, is you diminish the power of the temples and the priests that represent them. This would obviously create resentment. Egyptologist and author Rami Romani, uh, what a name, Rami Romani uh, would visit the tomb of Akhenaten, KV-55, on his show Mummies Unwrapped. The body of the pharaoh was not mummified like others, it was just a skeleton. The tomb he found uh, in was not decorated as a pharaoh's tomb should be. It was blank and small and removed from the family's burial place. Desecrated sarcophaguses of Akhenaten were found there. Uh, the damaged sarcophagus also had peculiarities, uh, protection stones uh, called cardinal blocks that are placed around the four sides of a sarcophagus, warning of death or disturbing the tomb. Uh, they were placed backwards. These stones are usually placed uh, to keep the world out, but it was almost as if they were turned to keep the pharaoh in. Romani explains that palace intrigue and names of pharaohs uh, being struck from records is nothing new. However, destroying a mummy in this way is unprecedented. They didn't just kill his memory, they killed his chance for eternity. The ruler who had done this to him must have been truly uh, have been despised by those who came after. Uh, it would appear in the end uh, that human followers of the displaced gods would have their revenge. The theory, a trip down the rabbit hole. Uh, Romani explores the theory that Akhenaten and Moses are the same in detail in his episode, Chasing the Mummies of Moses. After visiting the tomb and body of the pharaoh, he interviews author Ahmad Osman, whose book Moses and Akhenaten details the similarities between the two figures. Osman explains that both were born in the same location of Goshen, plus uh, the lives of both children were threatened due to their lineage. The Talmud, the text of the Jewish law, indicates that Moses was a king in a land called Ethiopia. So according to some interpretations, both were kings of a troubled and noble birth. Echonetan's capital of Armarna uh, may have been created because he had to leave uh, due to his beliefs. So he would have fled north just as Moses is stated to have done. Romani takes a further trip down the rabbit hole when he interviews Carl Drews, a scientist from the National Center for Atmospheric Research in regards to Moses parting the sea. Drews explains a weather phenomenon called wind set down. And this weather event, a strong gust of wind is 
able to blow apart a body of water showing the ground underneath. Drews refers to a historical example of wind blowing apart a lake in Egypt in the 1880s. Drews also tells Romani in his research he's talked to a number of academics that believe that the original biblical translation of the Red Sea, uh, Yam Sup, or Sea of Reeds, was indicating it was the Nile. Um, Romani would later examine the Nile River, which was overflowing with reeds, and found it very shallow at points. He further talks to the boatman who spent 15 years traveling the river and has seen wind-split sections of the river. The boatman would also explain uh, that points of the river have to be dredged regularly due to shallowness. In a final examination of the theory, Romani and other Egyptologists, Dr. Jane Vine, travels to the remains of Armarna. They go inside the still-standing tomb of Akhenaten's chief scribe. Inside the tomb, they find hieroglyphics showing the pharaoh holding uh, cartouches, uh, or stone tablets over his head. Uh, cartouches? Yes. Um, Romani explains these cartouches uh, usually hold the names of pharaohs and lineages. However, the cartouches or tablets Akhenaten is holding say they are the word of God the word of a tin. These images seem strangely familiar to depictions of Moses holding the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. Romani further walks the perimeter of the city. On the outskirts of the city are giant stone blocks indicating the boundaries of Armarna. He translates the hieroglyphics on the blocks to say the city of Armarna is Akhenaten's promised land. Conclusion. Many Bible stories appear to have been uh, borrowed elements at points from common oral traditions. However, is this an indication that Moses is Akhenaten? Definitely not. It is an interesting theory that makes good television. Absolutely it is. Romani's translations of hieroglyphics are into his own words. <clears throat> so it's easy to make them say uh, leading, leading things. He also interviewed a number of people who are sympathetic to alternative uh, interpretations of biblical and historical events. However, the hieroglyphics of Akhenaten holding the tablets is a bit shocking when you see it. Although this is still not proof of the theory. Uh, the things described in this story are interesting, but I don't think they'll necessarily turn the world on its head. However, it does appear Akhenaten did turn his world of Egypt on his head, on its head, excuse me, when he lived. His temples were outdoors, uh, meant to be hit by the sun. The artwork of Akhenaten also showed him and his wife in human endeavors, such as playing with their children unlike other Egyptian rulers. He also tried to push, push a culture that uh, venerated over 2,000 gods to worship just one. Uh, there are some strange similarities between Moses and the Pharaoh, which will probably formulate countless theories in the future. If anything comes out of those theories, hopefully its interest is Akhenaten. Uh, this little-known figure who his own people tried to destroy is fascinating. You may have thought you had issues in your family, but this pharaoh was probably the darkest black sheep who ever lived. His own people and line of rulers attempted to destroy his memory, uh, any memory that he ever existed, attempted to destroy his palace and his place in the afterlife as well. In the end, Akhenaten may not be Moses, but it appears he had the last laugh. His name is now known, and his exploits from 1353 BC are still being talked about to this very day. And one last note on this, another key component, uh, that's the end of the article, by the way, another key component of this comes with uh, some of the pharaohs which preceded Akhenaten uh, by a hundred years or so, and that comes with Thutmose 1 through 4, and there were four different pharaohs going by the title of Thutmose or Thoth Moses in the 100 or so years before Akhenaten arrived on the throne. In particular, uh, Thutmose III, uh, various also uh, spelt uh, Thutmoses or Thutmes, uh, Thothmes uh, was the sixth pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. Officially, Thothmose III ruled Egypt for almost 54 years. 
and his reign is usually dated uh, from 1479 to 1425 BC, uh, from the age of two until his death at the age of uh, 56. Thothmose translates in ancient Egypt as Thoth is born. And of course, Thoth is a deeply influential character in myth and the mystery schools and traditions, and arguably the most influential figure in the ideas of mysticism and mystery schools and alchemy and countless other esoteric teachings. Uh, and when combined with the Greek Hermes and the Roman Mercury, he becomes Thoth Hermes Trismegistus, uh, which equates to Thoth or Thoth the thri Thrice Great. Um, but the Pharaoh Thoth Moses conducted at least 16 military campaigns in 20 years. He was an active expansionist ruler, sometimes called Egypt's greatest conqueror, or the Napoleon of Egypt by Egyptologist uh, James Breasted. He is recorded to have captured 350 cities uh, during his rule and conquered much of the Near East from the Euphrates to Nubia. Uh, now, there were four rulers and successors in the lineage of Thothmoses, uh, soon leading to the emergence of Akhenaten and the store, uh, short establishment of monotheism in Egypt. Now, when considering this, it isn't hard to imagine that perhaps uh, going in line with this expansionist idea in Egypt and with Thothmoses being a great conqueror of territory, uh, Thothmoses III, that the priesthood was also considering ways uh, to spread religion into territorial expansion, a new and simplified religion that would be more easily promoted and assimilated by the masses than the plethora of over 2,000 Egyptian deities and minor gods of worship. Now, perhaps it's cynical of me, but also realistic to consider that monotheism, uh, it might have been established to serve more of a tool of easier assimilation and ideology than 2,000 assorted gods. In which case, it again isn't hard to imagine that the royal Egyptian priesthood, in conjunction with uh, military expansionist efforts in Egypt, formulated monotheism as a means of conquer, and that the Egyptian exodus, or the biblical exodus of the Jews from Egypt, was indeed aligned with the Egyptian priesthood, uh, the priesthood of Akhenaten, the monotheistic belief system under Akhenaten, and was used as a means of conquest and conquer. Now, we can only look at what ended up happening through the Exodus and the creation of the Old Testament and then the coming of Jesus and Christianity. It indeed has been used as a tool of conquer and control. And I'm not saying uh, that slamming Christianity or Catholicism or uh, any of the Abrahamic belief systems. But it's all very possible and even very likely that it truly le all leads back to pharaohs like Akhenaten and Thothmoses III and to utilize monotheism as a means of political and territorial expansion. And I'm not knocking monotheism either. I myself uh, have a belief in only one God. But that's not to say that I shun or look down upon people who believe in other deities or multiple deities, or put their faith in spirits of nature or whatever they want to believe in. Everyone should be free to follow the spiritual path that makes the most sense to them and best fits their lives. I'm a monotheist, so I don't think monotheism is a bad thing, and that uh, it's good that it was established. That being said, monotheism, at least in the Judaic and Christian and Catholic sense, and Islamic sense, and uh, how that spread to Islam, has always been of a join-or-die attitude, or join and believe or suffer eternal torment and damnation in hell. Monotheism, monotheism has definitely been used as a tool of conquest and territorial gains. Was Moses part of the Egyptian priesthood and an Egyptian noble and an elite? Were the Jews of the Exodus actually messengers of the Egyptian priesthood sent forth in a religious and political campaign of territorial conquests? 
All we can say for certain is the reign of Akhenaten and the emergence of monotheism in Egypt coincides suspiciously close to the tale of the biblical exodus to within a time frame of a hundred years or less. And we have several prominent pharaohs coming shortly before all this, the most prominent being Thothmosis III, who was famous for military conquest. It's very hard to see how, at least in some way, the Jewish notion of monotheism uh, wasn't at least directly influenced influenced by Akhenaten and the worship of the one god of the Aten sun disk. Well, I'll be damned. We talked about a lot of diverse topics in today's episode, and we managed to keep it to about an hour, give or take. I hope I presented some food for thought and nurturing of imagination and encouragement uh, to research these topics further if you found them interesting. And I know I fumbled and uh, hiccuped along the way there, uh, but I plowed through it like I do every episode. I really don't edit these episodes. I just push through them. I work on it throughout the week, and I try to record it on a in about an hour every uh, Thursday or every other Thursday. Uh, I don't think too much about the mistakes I make or the mispronunciations, so I hope you don't think about them too much either. And if you have been drinking a couple beers or a couple glasses of wine, I'm sure you might not have even noticed. Uh, now, what are your thoughts on the topics discussed today? Please hit me up, send me a message, leave a voice message at mentalpop.space, and I'll play it on a future episode. What will we discuss in the next episode? I have no idea, uh, but hope you'll stay tuned. Likewise, I'm thinking about starting another little mini-podcast of 10 or 20 minutes an episode uh, that will be nothing but book reviews. And I ultimately, I want to start a streaming radio station with various other podcasts. Uh, I'm just trying to take things a day at a time here. If you've got suggestions for future episodes, would like to be featured as a guest, or if you have original music that you'd like to be featured here, I hope you'll feel free to hit me up at www.mentalpop.space. Uh, and if you want to financially and morally support this podcast and these endeavors, uh, you can purchase uh, some of my artwork. Uh, it's at www.geneticmemory.online. Uh, likewise, stop by and say hello on Facebook at MentalPop31. If you enjoy these podcasts, you enjoy what I do online, I hope you'll comment, like, share a link, share this with your friends. So until next time, everybody, be safe out there. And peace profound.